0: After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken.
1: Now, I was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Many people saw the signs he was performing
0: and believed in his name. But. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each
1: person. Thanks, Mark. Uh, For those of you I've known for a while, good to see you again. For those of you who are new, thank you for for having me. Uh, I've been given such an interesting text today, but I believe it is absolutely uh, vital for our own lives and how we understand God. Uh, It was the novelist uh, John Fowles who said this, I reject Christianity, along with other great religions, though I love and admire the founder and admire some priests and some Christians. I despise the church, and in a hundred years, it will be dead. It is already a badly flawed utility. That's inspiring. Just thought I'd start with that one for our lunchtime service. Um, But that statement captures a very common sentiment, uh, something that I hear quite often when I'm in a conversation, especially when I tell people what I do, which is work for a church, the common statement is this, I like Jesus, but I don't like Christianity. I'm interested in this person, Jesus, but I definitely don't like the church, to which I often respond, do you really like Jesus? Which Jesus do you like? Because the big question when it comes to this this person Jesus who has just captured the minds of many throughout the last 2,000 years of history is is are we being selective with this person Jesus? Do we cherry pick the parts we like and leave out the parts that we don't like when it comes to this man? There are many reasons why Christianity and the church is not uh, what it should be, but among those reasons, I think one of the greatest is this idea That even many Christians are selective about Jesus. A man who writes for uh, the New York Times, um, he talks about this whole idea of Christians being selective about Jesus. Here's what he says. As a result, the Jesus of the New Testament, whose paradoxical mix of qualities has been replaced in the hearts and minds of many with a more congenial figure, a choose-your-own-Jesus, Who better fits their own preconceptions about what a Savior should and shouldn't be? Here's the point. If the Jesus presented in the Bible, the Jesus we're looking at in John's Gospel over the last few weeks and in the continuing months, if he truly is the Son of God, then a choose-your-own Jesus will not only leave the church in shambles, it will actually leave your life in shambles. You must accept Jesus as he is. That's what scripture is telling us to do. So here in John chapter 2, we see clearly what is actually shown throughout the rest of the gospel accounts regarding Jesus. What we see is a combination of traits that you would normally not see in one person. This is not only important for understanding Jesus, it's important for our own growth. If you've been a Christian Uh, for any amount of time, whether a few years or many, many years, how do you know that Jesus is at work in your life? You will begin to see the same combination of traits that you see in Jesus working out in your own life. It'll be becoming a part of you. That's what happens when you follow Jesus. And this paradoxical combination of traits is put on full display here in John chapter 2. As last week, if you were here, you saw the water changing into wine, and today we see Jesus turning over tables. You've heard of Jesus meek and mild? Well, today this is Jesus meek and wild. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, That one was free. But when you read this passage, it's very surprising. There's some parts of Jesus that people are drawn to and love instantly. Maybe you have a picture in your mind of A painting you've seen of Jesus. My friend Andrew talks about this all the time. Jesus with like a lamb over his shoulder and little children gathered around and like a halo around him like, oh, it's Jesus. He could be my friend. And then we have John chapter two. He makes a whip. He turns over the tables. He's driving out the animals. You think, wait a minute. I don't remember hearing about this Jesus. It Might even make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But this surprising scene, some people read this and they think, see, this is why I don't write, I don't like religion. I read a passage like this, and this is why I just can't deal with religion. But this passage does not add to the problem of religion. This passage deals with the problem of religion. How, let me just give you three ways um, this afternoon. First of all, what's happening here? Jesus is exposing religion. Jesus exposes religion. As we saw previously in the text last week, he's turning water into wine. Everybody loves this idea, even if it's often misunderstood. It's a sign of God's grace. It's a sign that God's going to bring a new order into the world through Jesus. But this story shows that that grace is always accompanied by truth. Now, some people complain about the idea of worshiping a God who tells us what we can and can't do. And indeed, maybe you feel like that this afternoon or you have family or friends that do. Like, oh, I just don't like the idea that there's this God and he's telling me how I I should live and he tells me that certain things are wrong. I just don't like the idea of worshiping a God like that who says that certain things are wrong. But let's ask ourselves this question. Could you worship a God who didn't care about what was wrong? Could you worship a God who, when injustice is happening in the world, could you worship a God who says, I don't care? oh, just, you know, you do you, like he looks down at the world and says, you just, everybody do their own thing. I'm not really going to deal with this. What kind of a God would that be? Would that be a God worth worshiping? And here we see a righteous display of anger. So what's happening? Has Jesus just lost it? Like what is happening in this story? I read, uh, this is one commentator I do not agree with, but here's what he said this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill temper. Did Jesus just wake up in a bad mood like it was Monday and he's just, ah, you know, I can't stand these people. You know, many of us want to turn over our desks. Is that what's happening? According to John, no. The way that John presents Jesus, his visit to the temple shows that this is absolutely not the case. So here he enters into the temple, he turns over the tables, he makes this cord of whip. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, first we need to spend a few moments thinking about what the temple is for, and then what the crowd is doing. So if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, God created our world. He created this beautiful garden, if you read in Genesis, as a meeting place between man and God, where mankind could meet with God face to face. That was the purpose of creation. But the story goes on to tell us that mankind has rebelled against God in sin, which is what put them outside of the garden. And if you read the narrative in Genesis, you will find that from that point on, when mankind fell, when mankind turned away from God, it was now guarded by this flaming sword which represented the penalty against sin, which is death. There's no way back to the presence of God without perfect justice. A wrong has been done. A crime has been committed. There's no way back into the presence of God unless justice can actually happen. But the story goes on in God's mercy. He allowed for there to be a temple amongst the people where sacrifices could be made. The priests could enter into the very center. And when the animals died, even at the youngest age, the children would see that and they would think the animal died so that I did not have to. That's how you would have been raised in that culture. That animal died so that I would not have to die. Someone had to pay. God is a God of justice as well as a God of mercy. That animal died so that I would not have to. And so what we see happening here in the courts is is this temple filled with visitors, people who want to see, know, and experience this God that they've heard so much about. But a price has to be paid. A sacrifice must be made. And as a result, you have this, what you see here is this commercial enterprise where all these stalls were set up and sold to, uh, these animals were sold to travelers who needed to pay for their sacrifices so that they could make atonement for their sin. That's the scene. And Jesus comes and he turns it all over. Now, why? Well, note this first and foremost. Jesus' actions here, they are forceful, but they are not cruel. They are powerful, but they are not cruel, as one cannot drive out cattle and sheep without a whip. But still, the actions of Jesus are very, very dramatic, and it seems that there are two reasons for this. The first is this, because this place of communion had slowly but surely turned into a place of commerce. This court The outer ring of the temple, if you will, where all of this is is taking place. It was designated so that the people from the nations could come and they could pray and they could they could commune with God. Instead, we have a scene where it's confused, it's crowded, it's become about this this business, you know, all this foreign money had to be exchanged. If you came from a Roman province, you couldn't use that coinage in the temple. It had to be exchanged for the proper currency of the temple. So all this is happening so the temple had essentially become an exchange bank and the whole affair had turned a house of worship into a house of business, which in some ways characterizes what religion is. I know the word religion can to some people just mean a system of belief and is certainly used that way, but another way in which the word religion is used is as a system of belief where I can do things in order for God to accept me. That's how we're using the phrase today, this idea that I must do something and God can accept me that way. And in some ways, what's happening in these courts in John chapter 2 is a picture of religion. People are doing business in order to somehow gain access to a holy God. Transactions tick the box, not unlike how people function when they think of God today. I've just got to show up to church on a Sunday, maybe come to a lunchtime service, and I'll get extra points. As if God looks down and says, well, 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 look who, you know, had an extra one. You came on Sunday and you came on Wednesday. You're definitely getting in the pearly gates. Many people would view uh, as if God is happy about just the sheer amount of religious observances that you practice. And so what's happening in this moment? Jesus is turning over the tables. He's exposing this as completely wrong and not only missing the point, but misrepresenting God. Imagine you're you're a young child and you come into the courts and you've been told this is the place where you can meet with God. This is the place where you can come and worship. And what do you see? Business. You see money changing hands and you see all this chaos and this noise. And you, you, You were told that it was a place of prayer, but instead you're seeing this whole scene. It misrepresents what God is all about. That's one reason why Jesus showed this righteous anger, exposing Religion. But there's also another reason. If you read the gospel according to Mark, Jesus adds to these hard words here in John chapter 2 that the leaders had turned, and he quotes from the Old Testament and he says this You've turned the temple into a den of thieves. You've turned the temple into a den of robbers. Why would Jesus say that? Was it because The money changers were cheating the people, perhaps, though we're not explicitly told. But more closely, the reference to den of robbers, think about that phrase, a den of robbers. A den is not a place where you, if you're a robber, if you're a thief, a den is not where you go to do your robbing, a den is where you hide after you have done your robbing. A den is where you hide after you've gone out and stolen something. You go hide in your den. It refers to a hideout. And Jesus is actually quoting in Mark's account of this moment from Jeremiah chapter 7, where it talked about people who were going out and living however they wanted, following their own rules, and then they would come in for public worship. And they'd say, oh, everything's fine because I'm just kind of hiding out in the temple meaning that it's fine that I do whatever I want to do during the rest of the week, but then I come in and I tick the box saying, I've been to the religious worship gathering so everything can be just fine. Jesus is using these hard words because he's saying you've turned it into a den of robbers. You're, you're communicating this idea that we can live however we want, but as long as we just show up to the temple, we can kind of hide out. It becomes hypocrisy. And what Jesus is doing here with his radical actions, is he's exposing the hypocrisy of religion. Religion can never deal with the heart. Religion can only act like a cover-up, and Jesus is exposing it here. So it's not primarily an outrage against, you know, dishonest business practices, though it certainly might have been. Jesus is saying, you've turned the place of worship into a hideout where people can just go out and do whatever they think they want, but step inside the temple and everything is then fine. To put it another way, the religious leaders, which we know they were guilty of because John tells us later on, they were using public worship and religious acts to cover their sin, to cover their wrongdoing. And that is a picture of religion. You go through the cycle of, I've done something bad, I've done something wrong, I feel guilty about it. If I can just atone for it, if I can just, you know, do all the right things, then I can cover this up. I can somehow clear my ledger. Jesus exposes this. He's rebuking the leaders for placing a false trust in religious observance. The sacrifices of the temple, they will never protect you from the penalty of sin. So Jesus' words are radical. He's he's warning them against hypocrisy. He's warning them against a a hallow religiosity. He's seen what the people were doing, and he delivers this verdict. Why? Because when he comes into the temple, he comes as a righteous judge. Now practically, think about how this shapes how you view God. We like the, the meek Jesus. We like the Jesus that that serves the poor or uh, where I grew up, which is in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We call it the hippie Jesus. Like everybody likes the idea that Jesus is just out there in like long flowing robes. You know, he's got like gluten-free bread that he's passing out to the masses and he's preaching this message of peace and everybody just loves that. But then he confronts sin or he challenges and exposes the, the religious leaders. We think, oh my, can you do that? Can you do that? We like meek Jesus, but do we like judge Jesus? He's the lover of our souls, yes, if you're familiar with the old hymn, but to the same degree that he is a person of peace, he is also a righteous judge. And this zeal that he has, notice verse 17, it's a quotation from the Old Testament. This zeal is completely in line with the character of God as revealed in the rest of the Bible very important to note, one of the reasons why John is quoting the Old Testament there is to say, you see what Jesus is doing? This is not some surprising act. If you know anything about God from the Scriptures, you'll know that what Jesus is doing is, is not an exception. It is perfectly in line with everything that Scripture has actually told us about God, who is full of grace, but also full of truth. Jesus is not only expressing that, Jesus is fulfilling it. So practically, if we leave out the parts that we don't like, we don't have the gospel. We don't have Christianity. Here we see the righteous anger of God against hypocrisy. He knows the purpose of all that the temple intended, but people were turning away from that. And in many ways, friends, that's a picture of us all. We, we tend to, to play that game. We tend to try to, to hide under what we could perhaps, perf- how we can perform or, you know, our, our good deeds can actually blind us to our need for God. So Jesus here, he's exposing religion. But two more brief points, it goes farther. Secondly, Jesus is not only exposing religion, he's abolishing religion. He's actually ending it. So the the religious leaders, they see this happening and they think, who are you? Who are you to do that? You just walk into the temple, you're throwing over the tables. I mean, can you just imagine that scene? Like, if you're the one running the temple, you're like, this is not good. Like, for the PR of the temple, like, what is happening and so naturally in verse 18, they say, you know, who are you to, to, to do this? It says, the Jews responded to him. What sign, verse 18, can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. G- Jesus is so radical. I, I absolutely love reading these passages. It's so shocking the, because the leaders, they got it they realized that what Jesus was doing in that moment was a direct challenge to their authority. They were allowing all of this to happen, and Jesus is turning over the whole thing. They were right. Jesus is claiming authority, and so what do they do? They demand a sign, but instead Jesus gives them a prediction. They say, prove it. Prove it. Now, practically speaking, is it bad to ask for some evidence of who Jesus is? Maybe you're there today, you're thinking, I'd love some more evidence about who Jesus is, and you're thinking, wait, does this verse tell me I can't ask those questions? No, no, no. It's not that Jesus won't provide evidence to those who doubt. This is clearly not the case. What Jesus is saying is that just another miracle to those who have already made up their minds will not create faith. For people who've already decided I'm not going to listen to this, I'm going to have nothing to do with this, Jesus is not going to continue to give more and more. Instead, Jesus makes a prediction about his death and his resurrection. And in doing so, he says something radical. He says the temple's not the point. To people who are leading the temple, to people who think this is the key to us meeting God, Jesus says destroy this temple. If this temple is destroyed, it's not the end of God's purpose. Imagine saying that to someone who for their whole life thinks this is the key. This is how I can know God. This is how I can have a right relationship with God. And Jesus says it's not necessary. See, they were concerned with the shell. They were concerned with the building. They were concerned with the outward appearance. The emphasis of their involvement in the temple showed that they thought all of these religious observances could safeguard them. And Jesus says it can be destroyed and yet God's purpose will go on. How can this be? How can this be? because Jesus is abolishing religion. He's removing the confidence that people had in religious observance. And in doing it with them, he also does it with us. No amount of, you know, there's so much superstition that tends to kind of fill our minds when it comes to, to faith. Like if I, just, if I can just position myself in, in the right building, if I can just you know do these very particular practices, then I'll be okay with God. Jesus says, that is not it. So what's Jesus doing? he's offering what the temple was intended to to provide. He's abolishing religion. And lastly, that's not the end of the story. He not only exposes religion and abolishes religion, but lastly, he's replacing religion. That's what Jesus is doing. He did not come to reform religion. He actually came to replace it. How could Jesus challenge the entire temple system and at the same time offer what the temple was meant to provide? He's, in in that moment, he's stopping the the activities of the temple and the sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus, as we will find out in John's Gospel and elsewhere in the Scriptures, Jesus is the temple. He wasn't merely cleansing the temple. Oftentimes, you'll you'll read that that is the, the, the headline to this particular narrative of Scripture. Jesus cleanses the temple. But it would almost be more appropriate to say Jesus is actually replacing the temple. The temple was the symbol of the atoning work that, that we needed to bring ourselves to God. He came to bring us into a relationship with God, forgive us of all of our, our sins. He is the way that we can approach God. That's why the author of Hebrews later on in the New Testament says these words, with his own blood, speaking of Jesus, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever you think, wait a minute, how does all these animal sacrifices, how do they, how do they lead to Jesus? Well, consider for one moment before we conclude an analogy. Some of you uh, remember the days before chip and pin when you had to sign a piece of paper if you used a credit card. Does anybody remember that? It was in the ancient days, you know. So you'd use your credit card and it would print out this piece of like actual paper and you would, you would sign it. So imagine you're shopping and we still live in those days and you found some shoes. I don't know what your weakness is, maybe it's shoes you find some shoes, you don't have enough money in your bank account, but you do have that credit card. And so what do you do? You swipe that card. It's like magic. Some of you think it's magic. It's actually not. Um, There will be a bill. So the the paper prints out and you sign it. And you are able in that moment to just walk out of there with those shoes. All you did was sign a piece of paper. How is that not stealing? You walked out of there without paying any money. Well, it's because that, that paper that you signed was an agreement it was a legal agreement that one day that payment was going to be made and in the old testament all these animal sacrifices were in a sense that little sheet of paper pointing towards something greater that you sinned and a payment needs to be made and one day the bill will come and it must be paid. And so again and again, people would see these receipts, and they're signing them saying, yes, it was my sin. Yes, I owe. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes into our world, and on Good Friday, when he's dying on the cross, that's the day that the bill came, and Jesus paid it once and for all. All of our sins. He said, I've paid that. I've paid it in full. You are now forgiven. You are now clean. Jesus is the temple. He's the true temple. He is everything that the temple was pointing towards and it is not because of what we can do it's because of what he has done and that's the point by the way of those last few verses in verses 23 through 25 where it says that he did these signs and some people believe but we're told there cryptically it seems that Jesus it said he did not entrust himself to those people for he knew what was in man what's the point of those statements Essentially, in verse 24 and 25, it's saying that Jesus did not believe their believing. He knew how fickle man was. He knows everything about our nature. He knows our inconsistency. He knows our hypocrisy. We're often surprised by this, but Jesus is not. The point of those last few verses is that Jesus did not come to this earth to gain a lesson on human nature. He came to redeem human nature. That's why he came, to rescue us. Now, you might get the impression that Jesus distanced himself from us. Oh, I know what's in man, so I'm going to stay apart from him. But that's not the truth. Jesus knew what was in us, and yet he pursued us. Jesus knew our need, and he fulfilled our need. What this shows is that a relationship with God is not based on what we can do. It's not based on how holy we are or how pure our intentions are. It's based utterly and entirely on what Jesus Christ has done, full of grace and full of truth. The truth about our sin, it's deserving of death, but the grace of God is that Jesus has paid it all. Have you received this? Have you received this? See, if you only are aware of grace but not truth, you might be bold, maybe even arrogant, but you won't be humbled. But if you're only aware of truth but not grace, you'll be humbled, but you won't be confident. You won't be bold. You can't approach God. But in Jesus Christ, we see, as John said, we learned the first week with Pete, Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. So what's the solution? Come to Jesus for everything you would find in the temple. Forgiveness, cleansing, new life, restored relationship with God. And when anyone asks, by whose authority and by whose payment? Jesus says, by my authority, and by my payment. You are made clean. You are made whole. You are forgiven. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your journey is with Christian faith, but let's pray right now that we would rest in that altogether, together, rest in the finished work of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you that in your truth and holiness, you identify what sin is and you don't wink at it or pretend that wrongdoing and injustice don't matter. And yet in your grace, you sent your son to die in our place and fulfill all that the temple was pointing towards. And I pray for each and every one of us that we would not rely on religiosity, but rather that we would rely on the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. We trust in him. He's our savior. May we know and experience the forgiveness and grace that he came to bring. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.